0: When Peter Vortzmann first went to Berlin as a student back in the 1970s, he immediately fell in love with the city. As the son of German-speaking Jewish refugees from Vienna, he's found that Berlin's constantly evolving energy can stimulate a whole range of emotions. And making Berlin his second home has required Peter to grapple with some powerful ghosts from its past. Peter is an accomplished playwright, author, and translator. The Bloomsbury Review called him a 20th-century brother Grimm. He's just written a masterful poetic account of Berlin and his experiences in its haunted streets and buildings. The book's called Ghost Dance in Berlin, A Rhapsody in Grey. Peter Voitsman joins us right now to tell us about it on Travel with Rick Steves. Peter, thanks for joining us.
1: Oh, Thank you, Rick. I'm really uh, delighted and honored to be on your show.
0: Thank you. Now tell us just briefly about your experience over the years in Berlin. When have you lived and why were you there and, and how did it inspire you to write your book?
1: Well, I should say for me, Berlin is loaded, isn't always will be loaded, but isn't always will be really alive. I first experienced Berlin as a Fulbright scholar in 73. I remember telling the Fulbright Commission that this was a very difficult year for me. Um, I was actually based in Freiburg in the Black Forest at the time, and we regrouped in Berlin. And I remember arriving in Berlin and immediately falling in love with the energy of the city. At that time, there were two Berlin's: There was the West Berlin and East Berlin, and this was a city that was really alive. This was a city where I suspected at the time, and now I'm convinced that the wild creative energy of the 1920s is still alive there and the Joseph Goebbels, the time Gauleiter of
0: Berlin under Hitler, did not succeed in ridding the city of this anarchic spirit. The subtitle of your book, Ghost Dance Berlin, is A Rhapsody in Gray. And then you write, the city is cold, unblinking, littered, sad with memorials. Uh, at the same time, it's a city that seems to give you energy. I
1: think what's what's amazing about this place is, in its very grayness, it is one of the most joyous places that I've ever been to. Perhaps it's a longing for the sunny south. The sun doesn't show through until well into April. If you arrive, as I did on January 1st, on my last day, 2010, you don't see the sun. You, it blinks at you, but you never see it. And yet there's something about this place. Perhaps uh, people turned inwards, uh, the warmth of a cafe, the, the, the introverted nature, the, the bookishness the raucous nature of this place, there's something unbelievably attractive
0: about it. Now, you've written this incredible fantasy kind of story, the premise of your book. You've got ghosts that go back and forth from a a present-day perch on a lakeside mansion, and you you imagine these sets of ghosts, and one of them is uh, the exiled Jewish banker family that owned this mansion, and the other is uh, Hitler's minister of finance and his entourage that took over the mansion. And then you've got another gaggle of ghosts that look across the lake as they plan the final solution, the extermination of the Jewish race. And then you've got your characters jumping back and forth over what was the wall. Talk about how that helps you explain how you find Berlin so fascinating. 2010 was the coldest
1: winter in the last three decades. And so I actually, in what I think of as a great Semitic tradition, walked on water. I took some ginger steps at first, and then I saw a hockey team skating across the lake. And I walked out into the middle of this mythic, infamous lake, Wannsee. Maybe many of your listeners have heard of the Wannsee Conference. This was one of the most horrible conferences in history where they decided upon how to uh, efficiently organize the mass extermination of a people. That's happening on one side. That's right next to the Lieberman Villa, Villa of Max Liebermann, a, a Jewish Impressionist painter who revolutionized painting in Berlin and then was turned out of the very academy that he had founded. The Villa that I lived in was owned originally by the Arnholdt family. The Arnholdt uh, family were Jewish bankers, originally bankers to Bismarck. This gets into the very paradox of, of Berlin life. Bismarck was an anti-Semite who, of course, had to have a Jewish banker to uh, finance his uh, growing um, imperial uh, needs and desires. The Arnholt family fled and Hitler gave the house to Walter Funk, his minister of finance. And I, in my insomniac imagination, when one has insomnia, everything becomes metaphor in a way. I heard the rustling of ghosts around me. I speak in part metaphorically and poetically. I tried to imagine what these two presences, how could they could deal with each other? The presence of the Arnhold family and their guests. It was a villa in which there was a kind of artistic and literary salon, a salon reaching back to the 19th century, these great salons of Rachel Warnhagen. Rachel Warnhagen was a converted Jewish woman in whose salons the artistic and literary elite of Berlin, of Germany gathered together and who several years later, Decided, uh, this is after Napoleon's invasion, decided that they would no longer eat at table with their former hosts and they founded the Deutsche Tischgesellschaft, at which uh, Jews were excluded. But Berlin has always been, I don't know if melting pot is the right word, this giant uh, oozing Bratwurst of a place in which, somewhat like the native Vienna of my parents, was a place certainly in the 20th century where you cannot extract the Jewish element from cultural life
0: of this place. You wrote in your book, uh, to this day I often feel like one of those plump, round, hand-painted Russian wooden matryoshka dolls with a German embedded in my English, Yiddish inside the German, Hebrew pulsing in the Yiddish, and the universal cry of a newborn echoing within. It's like you're wrestling with your identity in a city that's wrestling with its own identity and then I picture you standing on this frozen Wannsee. Is that where the idea of writing this book came to you, actually, when you're standing on that frozen lake, looking at the mansion, and looking over where the conference was being held that, that was scheming the extermination of your race?
1: This was certainly where one of the ideas came from. There was something about Berlin. I can't describe the energy. I was happy to be alive. Now, is that in contrast to so much death around me? I don't know. I felt joyous, I can't explain it, I shot up out of sleep at dawn, I walked several blocks to the grave of the poet Heinrich von Kleist, I'm also a translator from the German and I translated Kleist, and I communed with Kleist and asked if he wouldn't mind if I would borrow a couple of impressions of my my stay, and every day I had new vivid impressions that I had to communicate, and the book started in emails to my brother and sister. Mm -hmm. That became fleshed out, and I, I just couldn't stop. I couldn't stop feeling happy. It's a little bit like that wonderful scene in A Christmas Carol, where Alistair Stims starts dancing the day after he wakes up to find that he's still alive, and he, he says, like, he, he, "I don't know if you remember his jig. I don't know anything. I know I don't know any." And there's this this joyousness. I felt it every day waking up in the city
0: of Berlin. You're of a Jewish Austrian family. Both parents, yeah. I grew up speaking German as a first language. Now, this is the capital of Hitler and Nazism and and your book reads like kind of like a love story of Berlin. How can a Jew love Berlin?
1: Well, first of all, I've always pursued ambivalence in my life. When I was growing up as a child, my parents were criticized by other family members for keeping the German language alive, and my mother's response was to stop speaking German would be to cut their own tongue out of their mouths. There's been a Jewish presence in German lands along the Rhine ever since the Roman army first got there. It is a part of the history of the country. It is a part, for better and for worse, of the 20th century. And for me, on top of that, Berlin is this immensely creative city. It, it oozes art. It, it, it oozes creativity everywhere, which way you go. Everybody's got a story to tell. There is this anarchic spirit. The city's bankrupt. You never know how, how it works. The ice is not cleaned in the winter time, which is a problem because the whole city is like an open skating rink, but somehow you just love it. You love the people that you meet. You love the bratwurst that you eat on uh, Alexanderplatz. You love all the the oozing fat of these pork dishes, which for me is the, the great taboo. And my father being a very assimilated Jew from Austria taught me everything that I was not allowed to eat and the pleasure of eating everything that I was not allowed to eat.
0: What is it about the German fondness of of the flesh of the pig and then the Jewish abhorrence of it and then how people like your Jewish-German father having to have that forbidden flesh even if it's not okay? I think the pig is a totem. Uh,
1: it's the image that you see almost everywhere when you walk around Berlin and it's the image, of course, for me, of the forbidden fruit, forbidden flesh, that uh, my father taught me what you must not eat, and then turned it around and said, the pleasure of learning to eat what you must not eat. He would take us to a deli on a Saturday or a Sunday, Shaland Weba in New York, which was a sort of racy experience, a little bit like taking his sons to the culinary brothel, Uh, My mother (laughs) knew about it, but uh, shut her eyes. There was no pork allowed in the house. But uh, my father lusted after
0: this meat ham way
1: Oh, icebein. Icebein. Yeah.
0: You see it on every menu in Berlin. Icebein. It's a mythic dish, but nobody
1: dares order it. No (laughs) Americans dare order it. My father, he's not alive anymore, but I, I called out to him and asked my late mother's forgiveness, too, for waxing, ecstatic, and lyrical about this dish on a plate which is an almost Neanderthal dish. You, you feel like a caveman attacking this piece of flesh, and it's, it's wonderful with a mug of beer.
0: And, Peter, when you write about the bread, even, you write, nobody knows how to bake whole-grain bread like the Germans. It tastes like it just came out of the oven of Hansel and Gretel. You you clearly have an affinity for German culture, even though your family was victimized by the Nazis. Is that not a struggle for you?
1: Oh, it's a constant struggle. To my mind, it's the basic struggle of my life. Needless to say, the oven in Hansel Gretel is an ambivalent image. That oven was not only used
0: for cooking bread. The witch intended to cook children in it. And then you talk about present-day Berlin's struggle against neo-Nazis and the graffiti you see in Prince Lauenberg. Where it says, Berlin against Nazis and so on.
1: I split my time between a villa on the Wannsee. There were no extra accommodations for my family who came with me to Berlin. So we sublet an apartment in Prenzlauerbach. And I was deeply moved in Prenzlauerbach because on May 1st, the traditional workers' holiday, neo Nazis decided that they were going to march on Prenzlauerbach. It was going to be a statement. Well, they never got anywhere because i joined the barricades of 2500 of my neighbors who literally blocked the nazis from taking steps into our terrain and i felt deeply moved and i felt one of them i mean the the young people on the barricades were moved to see what they called an old timer i didn't quite like looking at myself as an old timer and then when they found out that i was a foreigner to boot i mean they were moved and we we hugged each other i mean it was it's a great city And I am convinced that there was a cultural marriage between two peoples. It was a stormy marriage. It was a rough marriage. It was a dramatic marriage, which gave certainly the 20th century some of the best that it's ever seen and definitely some of the worst. But I firmly believe that Germans, at least of my generation, and I'm 60 now, Germans and Jews, are both children of that cultural marriage that ended in a terrible divorce, mm-hmm. and that, in fact, we have a great deal to say to each other, we have a great deal in common, much more in common than we think.
0: I'm Rick Steves. This is Travel with Rick Steves. We're speaking with Peter Wortsman. Peter writes a book, Ghost Dance in Berlin, A Rhapsody in Grey. Our phone number is eight seven seven three 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 seven four two five. And Charles is on the line from Naperville, Illinois. Charles, thanks for your call.
2: Hey, Rick. Hey, Peter. I uh, want to tell you, it's sort of funny, I'm listening to you speak, and um, I, too, studied in Freiburg and Breisgau in southern oh. Germany when I was in college in, in 91, and I, I was lucky enough, I went on my own, which mostly I went with my friends, but uh, one weekend I went all by myself all the way to Berlin. I did took the all-night train and had a wonderful time spending about 48 hours really hardcore hitting Berlin, and uh, I just loved it. I thought it was a great city and I really exhausted myself, but I had great fun. But one of the one of the coolest things I did, I, I was a history major and a, and a German double major. Before I went, I, I Xeroxed all these pictures from books of when the Russians were, were storming Berlin. And I had these Xeroxes, and when I was in Berlin, I, I, I took some time and found where the, the pictures were actually taken. And, and it was so chilling to see, like there were so bullet holes in some of the columns, and, and to stand where soldiers were standing, where all this history took place, and I just... I was wondering if it, if that's still there or is that through all the rebirth of Berlin through the 90s and, and now, has that all been washed away or is that still there When if you go back?
0: One of my favorite little places in Germany is on top of the Reichstag building. And if you know where to stand and look, you can see bullet holes from there, from the very last days of World War II. If you can imagine a country being invaded from both sides and the defenders finish their fighting on the rooftop, literally, of their parliament building, that's what happened with the, the Nazis on the last day of the war is the Americans were pushing in from the west and the Russians came in from the east, and the last stand was literally on top of the Reichstag.
1: And when you look at it today, that modern architectural type of the Reichstag, it looks a little bit like a prescient eye looking out into the future and
0: onto the past. Oh, what a stirring building. That's that new glass dome that has been fitted yes. onto the bombed-out hulk of the previous Reichstag that was left as a memorial uh, throughout the Cold War, right on the no-man's land of the Berlin Wall.
2: Now, when I went, they were still building that but I would love to go back. Is it hard to get a tour of, you know, walk that big circle, cavalcade no,
0: it's, it's very easy. You you you. you just you, have to stand online line. You stand in line, you walk the ramp all the way to the very top, and look down over the shoulders of the German legislators uh, from the very top of the dome of their new Capitol building.
1: It's all about living
0: history, Berlin. That's for sure. Thanks, Charles. All right, thank you. We're talking with Peter Wurtzman. His book is Ghost Dance in Berlin. Peter, you talk about, you know, these ghosts that are jumping back and forth, and the frozen von C and everything, and and the wall dividing the city. And in a way, you also talk about the wall surviving metaphorically today. In fact, you talk about driving around town with a taxi who told you that the wall survives, but in money, not in stone. Uh, how does the wall survive today in your mind?
1: Certainly, if you've been in Berlin long enough and you are of my age, 60, you can quickly pick up who's an Aussie and who's a Wessi, who's an Easterner, who's a Westerner. You just sense it mm-hmm. that difference has disappeared in subsequent generations my children were there with me mm-hmm. and they didn't feel it at all
0: okay but people who spent their youth under communism you're saying you can tell it today
1: yes but mm-hmm. you know there's communism but i don't want to whitewash it but there was also a social protective network that certainly the west didn't offer yeah there were, there are two sides to it it's a very
0: complex place full of complete contradictions this is Travel with Rick Steves. We've been talking with Peter Wartzmann in his book Ghost Dance in Berlin. Peter, are the ghosts still there?
1: Oh, yes, they're still there. Perhaps most moving to me about the city of Berlin is something called Stolpersteine. Stolpersteine are these brass plaques that you are deliberately meant to stumble on, that is, the pedestrian is. They're polished brass plaques on which there are the names and dates of deportation of individuals who lived in each house. I find myself always perennially moved by this. I, find I have to pause and imagine who was here and whose ghost is still hovering here.
0: Peter Wertzmann, Ghost Dance in Berlin, thank you so much.
1: Thank you so much, Rick.
0: Rick Steves has spent a third of his adult life in Europe researching and writing guidebooks. His classic, Europe Through the Back Door, freshly updated this year, teaches the skills of smart travel. At Rick Steves' online travel store, you'll also find guidebooks and phrasebooks for Germany, Austria, Switzerland, and every other corner of Europe. To learn more about Rick's books, visit the Travel Store at ricksteves.com.